So glad you joined us today. And a little bit later today at 4 p.m. on Sunday, we're hosting a membership class. We would love to have you come. And uh, maybe some of you are ready to kind of move to the center of church life. And others are just interested in learning more because you're new to our church family uh, and want to explore our mission, vision, and values and the culture of our church and just to learn more about what drives us as a church community. Uh, you're invited to come join us um, again on our Zoom platform. You can head over to kingstreet.org. You can access the Zoom link. It's a one-hour class at 4 p.m. We'd love to have you come, whether it's just to learn more or maybe to, uh, again, choose to move to the center of church life. If you haven't found a circle to belong to yet, a small group community, it's a, a big part of our discipleship strategy uh, to help people gather and grow and then go. And so uh, gathering in small group communities is a wonderful way to grow and then to be on mission in the world together as a small group. Um, so you can reach out to Pastor Gary Campbell at gary at kingstreet.org and he can help you find a circle to belong to. Well, today we're continuing our series called Do Life Differently based on the book of Philippians. And it's a four chapter book, again, where the Apostle Paul, who's writing from a first century prison in Rome, he's writing to a group of friends who share their common faith in Jesus with the Apostle Paul. And they're in modern day Greece. And this first century document is extremely relevant for our 21st century life. Uh, there are so many practical um, teachings from the Apostle Paul. Uh, he gives us handles to hold on to when it comes to applying our faith to our real-life relationships and situations that we find ourselves in. And so it's just a really, really accessible and practical book. And uh, we've been looking at a passage to ponder, which is in the middle of this four-chapter book. It's in chapter 2, where Paul is writing, and he doesn't spend a lot of energy doing this in his letter to the Philippians. Um, that's reserved for other letters in the New Testament, uh, the book of Romans particularly, and, and other books where Paul uh, steps into some more theological and doctrinal weighty matters. Uh, but in this uh, passage to ponder, Paul does, in the middle of a very practical, pragmatic book, elevate our thinking uh, to understand, again, the true nature of the Lord Jesus. And so our passage to ponder is taken from um, the second chapter of Philippians, beginning at verse 8. So um, I'll read it for us again today. In your relationships with one another, and again, the Christian faith is so much about relationships, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And here was his mindset who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God or status with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's hard to think about Jesus without in the same breath thinking about humility. Um, again, Jesus sets aside the privileges and he doesn't leverage his status as God. Instead, he adopts a, um, a stature of being human, found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And that death was for our sins so that we could be made right with God. And so Paul, right in the middle of this beautiful book where he writes to his friends about what it looks like to work out their Christian faith in very practical ways, he reminds them that Jesus is at the very center of their faith. Now, our teaching theme for this morning is about contentment. Be content. And um, I want to direct your attention to just three brief snapshots or Older Testament uh, vignettes or stories. And, uh, and then we'll take a look at a few principles. It's a two-point sermon today. 
And in our second point, we'll take a look at um, the next part of the book of Philippians. But before we get there, I just want to draw your attention to the theme of contentment as it makes its way through um, the Older Testament as well. So there's a king in the Older Testament by the name of Ahab. He was married to a woman, Queen Jezebel. And uh, King Ahab occupied the palace, of course, which is what ancient kings would have done. And he looked out in close proximity to his palace and he desired, the text tells us in 1 Kings chapter 21, he desired the vineyard of a man named Naboth. And Naboth owned um, this vineyard in, um, in the family lineage back in the ancient world. Family just passed property to one another. Ahab wanted to buy that property from Naboth, but Naboth didn't want to sell it. He wanted to keep it in the family. And so um, because Naboth said no to the king, which would have been a very gutsy move, Naboth became, uh, Ahab became very depressed and downhearted. And so the queen, Queen Jezebel, comes to him and says, why are you so downhearted? And he explains that Naboth refused to sell him the vineyard that he wanted because he wanted to grow a vegetable garden. That's what the king's desire was for that piece of property located close to the palace. Long story short, Queen Jezebel goes on a mission through deception and violence to take the vineyard away from Naboth, including having Naboth's sons killed in order for King Ahab, her husband, to adopt and to acquire the vineyard. Um, we need to remember something. His discontent, King Ahab's discontent, started with desires. And so contentment and desire is closely associated. We'll go to another story found in, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, well-known, where the king of Israel at this time, no longer Ahab, is a man named David. Well-known, well-regarded. And David is at a time in history when kings go off to war, the text tells us in 2 Samuel chapter 11. But David is not in the battle line with his companions, with his um, patriots. Instead, he is on the rooftop and he's bored. And he looks out from his rooftop and he sees a woman who's attractive and she's bathing and he sends for her. And many of us know the story. He ended up sleeping with, as the text tells us, Uriah's wife. And so David ended up having an adulterous relationship with a woman who was not his wife. And because he had desires that were cultivated and not resisted and not restrained, boredom led him to a place of discontent. Again, the text tells us clearly when kings go off to war, David was on the rooftop of his palace when he should have been somewhere else. And so we understand that desires that are not restrained, King Ahab, leads to discontent. When we are bored, we're vulnerable towards discontent. And then one last um, vignette or snapshot from the Older Testament, King Saul, who was the first king of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 18, is off at battle with David and others, um, winning over the Philistine army. And when they came back after a big win, uh, the women came out to celebrate and they sang a song that went something like this. Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. And the text tells us that this enraged Saul and was at the beginning or the catalyst for Saul setting a jealous eye on David who would eventually become his successor. And so as we consider that story, when we are needy like Saul was, and when we... Um, are hungry for the spotlight and to be at the very center, we actually find ourselves in a place of discontent and, um, and we are 
vulnerable again to making very poor decisions. And so this teaching over the next few minutes that we have together is about a, a very important invitation for us to uh, orient our lives in such a way so that we can experience the beauty and the goodness and all the rest and peace that we heard about last week that comes when we experience contentment. And so um, the last commandment in God's top 10 list, we could say, found in Exodus chapter 20 or Deuteronomy chapter 5, but in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, the 10th commandment goes like this. You must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ac uh, sorry, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. And so um, Moses writes these commandments as God gives them to him, um, because when we spend our life uh, looking over the fence at somebody else's home or their property, or looking at their spouse, or looking at whatever vehicle they may drive, or whatever uh, second um, uh, vacation property they own, or whatever job they might have, uh, or the kids that they have, uh, the career that they have, or their position in any way. Anytime we look over the fence and we desire what somebody else has, we move in the wrong direction, away from contentment and towards discontent, towards dissatisfaction. And so um, Randy Alcorn has said it this way, and I think he's so right. The wealthiest person is not the one who has the most, but the one who desires the least. The wealthiest person is not the one who has the most, but the one who desires the least. That's a very liberating and freeing place to be. Now, there's nothing wrong with accumulating. We'll talk about that as we move forward. Um, but if there's uh, a sense in which we feel incomplete until we've accumulated more, that's to live in a state of dissatisfaction. But if we are um, at home and at rest with what we do have, and our desire is for nothing else or for nothing more, we are in a very secure place, and peace is very likely our experience. And uh, this is what Paul is getting at when he invites us um, to pursue an, a well-ordered life with Christ at the center. It results... Whether we are experiencing abundance or scarcity, we are at peace and at rest, experiencing the beauty and goodness of contentment. So I've got two points for you or two thoughts for consideration. The first one is this. I think we need to stop for a moment or two today and consider what the enemy of contentment really is. And um, so let's start there. Uh, contentment is not something uh, that we pursue because the moment you start pursuing it, uh, you, you will experience a measure of discontent or dissatisfaction. And so no one's trying to hold something in front of you today to say, here's the carrot and keep chasing it. And then the carrot keeps moving. I think when we go and pursue contentment, uh, it'll be elusive. Um, contentment is a byproduct of ordering our life in a certain way. Again, with Jesus at the very center. And when we look at the passage in Philippians in just a few moments, we'll find that Paul is a little bit cryptic as he talks about the secret of contentment. But it's really clear in the passage that Jesus at the center is a big part of what it means for us to be content. When we order our life around him and his kingdom, uh, we are well on our way to experiencing contentment. So we don't chase it or pursue it. It's a byproduct of a well-ordered life. And so doing a values inventory of what we uh, hold most dear is a really good starting point when it comes to considering what the enemies of contentment might be and how they might prevent us from experiencing all that God has for us in that domain. And uh, if you ever want to stop and think about a values inventory, two of them come to mind that are quite simple to actually think about. How do I spend my time? 
and how do I spend my money? Those are two things that will reveal to us what we value the most. Uh, in my neighborhood, I'm sure um, those who are raising young kids who like to go to the rink and play hockey will have no problem setting their alarm at 5 a.m. or 5.30 a.m. on a Sunday morning to get their kids to the rink, to play the game or to be at the practice. And, and I get it. Good parents do those kinds of things because they value their family. They value their children. They maybe even value the sport or athletic activity they're participating in. And so the alarm gets set and it might be in the early hours of the day and it's still dark and cold in the winter, but they'll make the trek to the cold ice rink and maybe stop at Timmy's on the way and be a little bit sleep deprived because it's really, really important to them to be there. Um, for us, when it comes to gathering as a church community, it's important that we be a gathering community who gathers for worship and then scatters on mission in the world. And we make that a priority too, because we value our relationship with God and belonging to a Christian community. And so uh, how do we spend our money? How do we spend our time? These things uh, reveal what we value the most. So our culture has a certain grading system that it uses. And because we live in this world, we're not immune to, being, um, to adopting the metrics that our culture uses. So I just wanted to draw your attention to three of them. Uh, and, and just to be honest with ourselves, to say, how have I adopted that grading system or that those units of measurement, so to speak, as I evaluate my own success or my own greatness or whatever that might look like in life? So here's the first one. I believe our culture uses this grading system. The first one is greatness is measured by income. Um, and again, we're talking about this in the context of contentment. Um, we grade people, we grade ourselves, we establish a pecking order and a valuative system of some sort based on someone's net worth or someone's income. And, and, and income matters as it relates to providing for our family. It's, it's not to be minimized. Um, there, there can be a, a messaging that happens about the value of our work based on how we get compensated. So it's, it's not to throw that whole conversation under the bus and to say it doesn't matter. Money matters in this world because we live in a world where we need to buy groceries and put fuel in the car and, and pay the bills. And, and it, so it, it matters. Um, but we cannot evaluate the significance of our life based on how much we earn or how much we have. Because unfortunately in this culture, there can be a host of contributions that we make in this world that are not compensated the same way. Throwing a football, we're in the middle of the NFL playoffs. If you can throw a football or you can tackle someone or you can kick a field goal or whatever that might look like, you can get compensated in huge ways. And listen, what they do gives us entertainment on a Sunday afternoon or a Monday night, whatever that looks like, that matters too. Um, but the way our culture rewards people for earning multiple millions of dollars and then somebody who is off adding value in the trenches of our culture, um, looking after the sick and the under-resourced and maybe not compensated quite the same way, but the work matters. The significance of what they do is really, really important. Uh, remember Jesus, because we always need to go back to him, just as Paul does. You know, the book of Philippians turns on the hinges of chapter 2, uh, verses 5 through 11, this Christological hymn, Messiah Jesus, his nature, his mission, his character. Uh, Jesus says, a, a person's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions, right? And just before he says that, he says, be on guard and keep watch so that greed doesn't infect the heart. And so 
when we are in a place where our desires are unrestrained and we've thrown off the limits and we want to have what somebody else has, we run the risk of unfortunately experiencing the downside of dissatisfaction and discontent. So the first one that we need to think about is greatness is measured by income. Income matters, but maybe not as much as our culture says it does. Secondly, popularity is measure, measured by followers and likes. As you know, I'm speaking to a social media world, and um, even those who operate YouTube channels like King Street Community Church, we want to have as many people subscribe as possible. We'll say that to you at the end of the gathering. If you haven't subscribed yet, subscribe or hit the like button. We want to influence the world with this gospel message. So it's not that followers and likes don't matter. It's a way for us to get the message of Jesus out to the world. And uh, so it does matter, but maybe not as much as the culture says, it does matter. Um, I, I want to say this with humility to you today, too. I go on social media on occasion, but not as much as I once did. Um, if you want to live a life where you are chronically disappointed, dissatisfied, and um, bordering on envying other people's lives, um, stay on every social media platform you can for as long as possible, and whenever you're bored, scroll through your feed. That is a recipe for dissatisfaction, and it's a recipe for discontentment because we see what's on the front of the curtain of someone's life when somebody's posting all the highlight moments. And we don't see what happened five seconds before they took the photo or made the post or five seconds after they posted it. Um, people's lives are um, complicated. People's lives have a behind the curtain and an in front of the curtain moment. And um, so Unfortunately, for some of us, social media has the power to infect us and to rob us of discontent. Um, again, Paul writes this in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. He says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. And so Paul immediately says, it's important for us that we don't buy into the cultural value system um, that says... Likes and followers matters the most. How popular are we in the world? And when that is a, a defining metric for how we evaluate ourselves, we are going to be disappointed. And so popularity is measured by followers and likes, and we want to push back against that. And then thirdly, success is measured by a comfortable life. The culture teaches us that the more creature comforts that we can attain, um, the happier we will be. Um, the pleasure principle is actually a false promise. Uh, I, I read a book recently by a prof out of um, Stanford University in California. Her name is Dr. Anna Lemke, and she was actually interviewed on The Social Dilemma. And um, anyway, I, I'll try to uh, sort of summarize a book that she wrote called The, um, the Dopamine Nation. And dopamine is that uh, pleasure drug, uh, so to speak, that the brain naturally produces. And uh, track with me on this one. There, there is, um, the way the brain is, is operated is it always seeks um, equilibrium or social scientists call it like homeostasis where um, pleasure's on one side, pain is on the other. We, we all want to experience more pleasure than pain. And so we order our life in such a way, and this is relevant for this point, is that how can I get maximum pleasure and, and minimal pain? Uh, we want to insulate ourselves from pain the best we can. But the way the brain operates it will always bring things. So if you, if you pursue pleasure, 
um, the, the brain will try to bring things into balance by elevating the pain element. So if somebody's trying to escape some of the pain in their life and they go to um, abuse alcohol or drugs, it'll give them some pleasure for the moment. But when they wake up the next day with a splitting headache, it's the body's way of bringing equilibrium, pain comes back. Or somebody wants to experience pleasure, but they understand the way the brain works. They go for the jog. It's called the runner's high. And they're out there and they're working hard and they're sweating and they're dehydrated and they're, they're working out. They're experiencing a bit of discomfort and pain while they're on the run. But when they come back, the body balances things out and the pleasure that comes after the workout is real. And so um, this idea that if we just put all of our uh, chips to the center of the table. We're all in and we're, we pursue pleasure. We try to insulate ourselves from pain. We will end up disappointed. Whether it be that vacation that we take and it happens to rain on the Saturday afternoon or all the things we plan that we would just have a wonderful experience. Life outside of Eden is, um, is going to disappoint us to some degree. And so success is not measured by the comfortable life. In fact, fulfillment could be argued, and this is in keeping with the ways of Jesus. Uh, Jesus teaches us that we should take up our cross and follow him. In other words, identify with Jesus and his crucifixion. And the way to fulfillment is to choose to be a servant first, to wash other people's feet. Deep soul satisfaction happens when we press on the lever of service and pain. And then the way life operates, which is the ways of God. Things have a way of working where equilibrium and homeostasis kick in. But the way of the kingdom is so beautiful and so wise. We don't want to buy into the cultural trap that says we should pursue pleasure and comfort at any cost. There is the comparison trap, and it's very real. Looking over the fence can be problematic. And you've heard it said before many times that um, uh, the grass is greenest where we fertilize it and water it. And uh, we can look over the fence from a certain perspective and somebody's property looks amazing, so much better than ours. But if we would spend more energy focused on making our property better, we would find ourselves experiencing a larger measure of contentment. And uh, this is something that I think is, is really interesting. I was just thinking about this teaching and writing things down as they came to me. So I wrote this down. I want what I have until I learn what you have. And then something shifts inside of me. And I must have what you have. I've, I've called that the marketing machine. Our culture wants to, our, our whole capitalistic economy is built on creating dissatisfaction. MBAs sit around tables strategizing how they can help us want the latest and the greatest and the better and the best. And the economy is built on that on you and I opening our wallets and purses and spending. And if we don't have the money to bring out a credit card and put it on credit, uh, because we have to have what my neighbor has. And we have to go and, and arrange our life around that or else we will feel discontent. Um, okay, number two, the secret of contentment. Let's go to Paul now with Philippians. Um, Paul is a little bit cryptic, as I mentioned, about how we can um, get to this place of rest and peace or of contentment. And uh, I do appreciate this passage because Paul is um, talking about these two extremes, uh, scarcity and abundance. And he's saying in the middle... Um, that contentment is possible. And then he quotes this verse that is a, such a well-known passage, uh, but it's often stripped of its context and misapplied. He says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. 
I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. This shows up in, in, in greeting cards and email signatures and all over the place. And it's applied generically. And I get it. The principle is with the power of Christ in me, I can live a life where I can overcome where I can do what I'm called to do. I get that. The residency of the Spirit in my life can help me do things I could not do on my own. But in this passage, Paul is actually talking about how whether I'm in abundance or whether I am in scarcity, I can live content because Christ is in me. Jesus is at the very center. Um, I, I wish I could do all things. I wish I had a vertical like Michael Jordan or I could hit the long ball like Tiger Woods. Um, I, I wish I could, um, you know, throw a spiral like uh, Matthew Stafford of the LA Rams, my favorite team, who are going to beat the Tampa Bay Buccaneers this afternoon. You heard it here first. Um, but I can't do those things. Uh, I can't do all things. Paul is saying the things that God calls me to do, um, like living with contentment, I can do that because of Christ who is in me. Let's take a look at our passage from uh, Philippians chapter 4. The next verse is verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. And so Paul is thanking the Philippians for sending their gift to him and uh, expressing their generosity, which we'll hear more about next week when Pastor Al gives the scripture talk. Continues by saying, I'm not saying this because I am in need. For I have learned to be content. That's a, a progressive word, uh, learning. It's a process that we're all undertaking. He learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Twice he says learned. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And then he says this passage, which we just talked about. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And so it's a wonderful passage again where Paul is talking about the secret of contentment. And in his first century context, he's kind of, he's not aligning himself with the Stoic view or the Stoic approach to contentment, where um, the first century Stoics would have said that the way to experience contentment is to detach from desire and to choose not to care. Paul's not saying that that's the way forward. Um, we are human and we have desires. With the help of the Spirit and the guidance of the Word, we can direct our desires. And we should care. Um, when, when we experience hardship or difficulty or losses in our life, we should care. I lost someone in my life who was like a spiritual father to me, who would pray for me every day and would call me to encourage me. He was my Sunday school teacher when I was eight years old. Um, he is with the Lord Jesus. It's a wonderful experience for him, but for those left behind, his family and people like me who counted on his encouragement and prayers, we feel the loss. And so um, contentment is not about detaching from desire or choosing not to care. Rather, the Christ-centered approach to contentment is about attaching to Jesus who empowers us to live well with abundance or with scarcity. Our circumstances matter, but what transcends that is the spirit of Jesus in us. Christ is King and we can trust him with the big picture of our lives. I wanna wrap up with this um, little story or vignette from a friend of mine who's a counselor. Um, he shared with me on occasion um, this story, which is very, very insightful and helpful. And it was very relevant for a season of my life that I walked through a little while ago. But he talked about a time when he was a youth pastor and he was serving uh, in a community in Western Ontario. And uh, early on in his youth pastoring days, he wasn't compensated very well. And he and his new wife at the time were um, 
walking through uh, Niagara-on-the-Lake and his wife fell in love with this, uh, actually he fell in love with this picture. And it was a picture of a young boy helping a young girl over a water, a waterway over a small little stream. And uh, they had it hung proudly in their living room when they were newly married. And um, on one occasion, they invited one of the um, leaders from their church, one of their board members, who uh, worked in a certain industry where he was very well compensated. And my counselor friend told me exponentially more than my, uh, my friend who was sharing the story. And um, this individual, this board member who was in the, in the living room with my friend, who at the time was youth pastoring, admired the picture. And um, my friend felt the spirit say, give him the picture. And um, it didn't take him long. And he got up and he took the picture off the wall and he said, I want you to have it. And he gave it to him. And the man was like, I can't take this. And he said, I want you to have it. And the one who had less gave to the one who had more. But here's the principle. And this is what my counselor friend shared with me. He said, Dave, in life, what we need to learn to do is give the big picture, put the big picture in God's hands and trust him with it. The things that we value, the things that are most dear to us, we put in God's hands and we can trust him with the big picture in our lives. And when we get there, when we honestly can say, you know what? I love the picture, it's beautiful, but I wanna do your will more than anything. We are moving in all the right directions for experiencing the kind of contentment that lasts. So I wanna pray for you and then we'll uh, invite the host pastors to come back. Father, thank you again today for the invitation to put Jesus at the center. And thank you that when we do that and we learn what it means to order our life around him, that contentment is the byproduct. And just like the Apostle Paul models for us that whether it's in abundance or in scarcity, contentment can be experienced. And uh, we realize today again, Lord, our need of it because we're in a culture that is um, pushing us and pulling us in all sorts of directions. And unfortunately, God, we can experience the infection of the culture and become a little bit more like them than we want to be. Pray, God, that you would help us to be distinctively Christian, to do life differently, and by choosing a better path that leads to contentment, rest, and peace. And I pray that for all of my friends today, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.